Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. You know, when we start thinking about the Bible and the Word of God, God says He has magnified His Word above all His name. And you know, it's peculiar how little time and respect and attention the general public and even in the Christian public gives to the Word of God. When God has said, I've magnified, I believe there's Psalm, let's turn to Psalm, uh, hold your place there. I believe it's Psalm 138, isn't it? Look at that. It'd be good if you'd read this with your own eyes or look upon it. Psalm 138, verse 2. The psalmist says, well, let's read verse 1 and 2, both of them. Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2. He says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Now look. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Some folks didn't know that in the Bible, did they? So I think it's a wonderful thing if we realize how God has exalted his word. And uh, so we ought to look into it. So as we teach it in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, there's so many precious things in the word of God that if we'll just take time to search them out and to look at, at them, we'll find that it's, it's a real blessing. 1 Peter 4 verse 1. Peter says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now let's look back and try to analyze this as we go along, and as we always do, get as much as we can out of each verse. If you remember, when he says, for as much, he's referring back to at least a couple of instances when he talked of Christ's sufferings. Well, if you look back in 3.18, for Christ also has once suffered for sins. You see that? The just for the unjust. And then in 2, verse uh, 22 on down, 21 on down, for here and were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Verse 23, when he suffered, he threatened not. Verse 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. So he's referring, when uh, Peter says, for as much as Christ suffered, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's referring back to at least a couple of instances wherein he's already spoken of the sufferings of Christ. And then if you realize also that we just ended up talking about how that his gospel was preached way back there in Noah's day, even through Noah by the Holy Spirit. And now he's bringing us to realize that there are many things in connection with the blessings that we receive, in connection with the sufferings of Christ. And he's going to unfold that now for us. So look at this carefully again. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, he was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Let's have the same thing in mind for our lives now as Christians and as believers that Christ had in putting an end to, to sin when he died on the cross, when he suffered for us in the flesh. Now then, the last statement in verse 1, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now then, it doesn't mean that Christ suffered in the flesh and having ceased from sin, for he had no sin. 
It means that we're to likewise reckon ourselves as having already suffered in the flesh for our sins when Christ suffered, and uh, and then we should cease from sin because we've already uh, considered ourselves or reckoned ourselves as being dead to sin. And Paul, I believe, kind of helps the thought here. If you turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6, uh, verse 11. Let's read verse 10 and 11. Romans 6, verse 10 and 11. For in that he died, he's speaking of Christ's death, he died unto sin once. In other words, for our sins, and he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now then, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. You see? But alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore, see the connection, reign in your mortal body. If we're dead to sin, we don't want it to rule in our lives, right? Uh, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Verse uh, 17 says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now go back and look at Peter and what he's saying here. And it'll, it'll make a, a great deal more sense when we bring all the different avenues of thought about uh, sin of the flesh into the picture. Look at verse 1 again. Christ suffered for our sins, didn't he? And he was put to death in the flesh. We're to arm ourselves with the same thought in mind, with the same mind, you see. We're to arm ourselves, prepare ourselves. Because Jesus put an end to sin for us. And then in verse 1 it says, For he that has suffered, last part of it, he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So he, the believer, we have, we've suffered in the flesh too, and we've ceased from sin, in that uh, the, the sins of our life should be reckoned as having been put to Christ on the cross, or died with Christ when he died on the cross. Now then in verse 2, that he no longer, the believer, should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. That's much as what Paul was saying. That since we've been risen with Christ, since he died for our sins, and we've considered ourselves to be risen again with him, that we shouldn't spend our time anymore. Uh, we should no longer live the rest of our, our, our time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. So there's a definite change that's taking place, and, and it's all based on Christ's suffering for us. It's kind of hard to explain, but I think you're getting the drift of it in your minds that we're talking about Christ being put to death on the cross in the flesh and our sins also being put to death there. And since he is alive now, we are alive in Christ because we're believers in Christ. And verse 3, will, as you unfold this, as each verse is read, it will begin to make more sense to us. Now look at verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, now look, we've had enough time, sufficient time in the past of our lives before we were saved, before we were converted as unbelievers to fulfill the, the uh, uh, to walk in the, the ways of the Gentiles, to fulfill these lusts of our past life. The time past of our life may suffice us. That's sufficient to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walk in lasciviousness. This was the past walk of the believer. We used to walk in sin. Paul says you were dead in trespassing sins. You walked in according to the course of this world, according to uh, 
prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He says, we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, seeking of our past walk. So is Peter. Peter's speaking of our past walk. So he says, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in, here was the past walk, in lasciviousness, in lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolaters. You see the progress in, in uh, the downward course in men's lives? First of all, it takes on a, first of all, it, it's a lasciviousness and lust. This is fleshly lust. Then it says, uh, you go out into the public and it becomes more uh, broad thread in your life as with others in, in banquetings and in revelings. And then it leads to what? Abominable. A man with his guard down and a man in that particular fleshly and lustful and sinful state and condition is ready to fall into any kind of idolatry to try to soothe his conscience. You see, he'll even worship idols in that condition. He'll become an idolater in that condition. He'll seek a cult or sect of religion in that condition. And he'll claim to be religious while all the time he's wicked as he can be. But he has to have some form of it. So it says, in abominable idolatries. If he can worship, even if he worships in evil, he's going to worship. You see, man is made to worship God. But when he won't worship God, he'll worship something he puts in the place of God. That's, that's man's nature. If we cannot worship the true and living God, well, we will in the sins of the flesh and in our sinful nature and our sinful circumstances seek to find something to appease our conscience, to try to make peace in ourselves, and we won't find it because there is no true peace outside of the Lord, the true God. He's the only one that can give you peace. And these people that are running around trying to grasp at every religion that comes around the corner, you know, lay hold of anything that comes along seeming to be uh, the answer to their uh, spiritual needs, and they find out it's idolatrous to the very core. You see, all of this world is idolatrous except those who worship truly the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. In other words, we worship God through Christ and because of Christ. So we really worship Christ too. And we worship through the power of the Holy Spirit. But all of it, the rest of it is idolatry. That's why John says, little children, little children, Christians, believers, keep yourselves from idols. He doesn't want us to fall back into any idolatry. All right, look in verse 4. Wherein they, that is, these that remain, they... The unbelievers and unsaved think it strange that you run not with them. You did run with them, didn't you? You know, if you're a believer now, you did run with unbelievers at one time. And they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right, speaking uh, evil of you. They say, what's happened to these people? I used to get along. You know, Brother Randy, we've lost a lot of our old friends because we try to live for God. People, uh, I, I just get amazed at how many times... Even people in the community that are still living in sin will avoid the presence of the preacher. Brother, they don't want him around. They just don't want him. They're not. And if you're, if you're trying to live for God, if you're a member of this church, they'll avoid your presence too because they're afraid you're going to say something to them about coming to church or witness to them about their need for the Lord. And they will avoid you. 
because of that fact. And it says, they, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of rights. You have sufficient of that. Look back at the ver- verse 3 where it says, For the time past of our life may suffice. You had sufficiency of that previously, right? Now it says, They think it's strange that you will not do the same things, so to speak. Alright, look. And they speak evil of you because of it. Verse 5 says, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? They're going to give an account to God. They're going to give an account to God because they still continue in sin. We were in sin by nature, but we've been saved by the grace of God and been born again into the family of God. A true believer, one that has received Christ, is a different person. He's a new creature. And so these people think it's strange and they don't know that God uh, is uh, going to hold them to account and he's not only going to judge the quick, that is the living, but the dead, the quick and the dead. He's going to judge Christians. He's going to judge those that are dead in trespasses and sin. He's going to judge all. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ as Christians and be judged to see what kind of life we've lived, to see what kind of works we've done, to see what kind of fellowship we've had with the brethren. All of our Christian life is going to be taken into account at the judgment seat of Christ. It says, and the ones that are there, the word for the judgment seat of Christ is the word Bema, B-E-M-A, and it means the raised platform wherein, like when Sheila gets out of college, she'll come up and get her diploma, you see to receive the rewards for the work done. And then if you don't get all the lessons, they may give one that's blank and say, you finish all those lessons and you come back and get it. So you got to do it, see? You know, in high school, have you ever seen high school graduations where they say, well, now, you've got to come back and you've got to fulfill a certain obligation before that's really legal? You know? And so we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to either uh, suffer loss of the rewards we could have or we're going to receive the reward in full. And it's uh, the thing about it is, it's going to be based on, and I've given you before so many times, and if you want them, I'll give them to you again after service, three main passages of Scripture <coughs> excuse me, on the judgment seat of Christ that show you that these three things are works and our whole life as a Christian and our fellowship with one another as Christians is going to be taken into account. And if you want those, I'll give them to you later. But what I'm trying to say, uh, here it says in verse 5, that they, these people, shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Well, they're going to be judged at that great white throne judgment because they have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now look at the next verse. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now this is a difficult passage, I'll have to admit. But I don't think it's as difficult as we might uh, surmise if you'll connect it back with verse 19 of the previous chapter. Look at verse 19. It says, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, notice in verse 19 of the previous chapter, it's talking about Christ by his Holy Spirit in Noah preaching to those uh, that were dead in trespass and sin in Noah's day and They are as these, in verse 6, drop down to 4 verse 6, are dead now and in prison. In other words, they are kept for the day of judgment. You see, all souls that are not taken to heaven are waiting the day of judgment. All spirits are uh, reserved until the day of judgment. Uh, They don't go to heaven. 
they're taken to a place we don't know where where it's located, but it's away from God. It's separated from God. The rich, uh, the, the rich man in Lazarus serve an example of it. Rich man when he died in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. He was in a place of separation and suffering and disappointment and judgment. But he's waiting for a future judgment. And uh, Lazarus, when he died, he was taken care of by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So there was a separation between the saved and the lost when either one of them dies. So what we're saying here that these people that were that are dead in Peter's day, verse six, look at it, you have to keep your eyes on this sometimes. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. They were physically dead when Peter wrote these words, but they had had the gospel preached to them. And even though they were physically dead, they're waiting for a day of judgment that they might be judged, followed on down according to men in the flesh. Because they were living at one time, and they had the gospel preached to them, just as in the days of Noah, those people had the gospel preached to them. And when they wouldn't receive it, all through the ages, people, and through the prophets, the Old Testament, through the apostles in the New Testament, those that were then living have the gospel preached to them, and they, they having refused that gospel, are reserved until a future judgment. God has reserved them until a future judgment. But the living... Those that uh, are living have the opportunity to live for God. See, it says, but live according to God in the Spirit. So, while you're living, you have opportunity to live for God as a Christian. But the gospel has been preached. And so, it's before us that we either be obedient to the gospel and live for Christ, or as some here are pictured by Peter as having refused the gospel, and even though they were dead in Peter's day, they had, they're going to be judged according to men in the flesh because they've had their opportunity. And there's not going to be a second chance for people. And Jesus didn't give these people in Noah's day a second chance, as some might indicate. They had their opportunity. I don't believe that anyone, after he leaves this life, has another chance to be saved. If you don't settle that question while you have life here and now, there's no hope for you. It's got to be taken care of now. And that's why it's so important that people not be led astray and think, well, if I'm not saved here, well, some way eventually in eternity, God will dig me out of some pit and give, and give me another opportunity. No, he's not going to do that. And you know, a lot of them preach and teach that kind of thing. There's a lot of cults that teach that. There's a lot of uh, our Christian denominations that, that hinge on that kind of a thought. But you mark it well. You've got the time and opportunity now and, and when the Holy Spirit deals with you, you better receive Christ and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because when you die, you have no chance of choice then and preparation. So now is the time to prepare. Now verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. In other words, there's coming the time that there will be the end of, of all life and uh, the judgment seat of Christ. Christ's coming will happen. And he says, Be ye therefore sober and watch into prayer. In other words, you as a Christian are to live for God while you have life, aren't you? And he says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. That word charity is love. Have fervent love. Genuine love. Uh, inspired or enthusiastic or, or uh, real genuine love toward one another. Have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Look at that. What's it going to do? If we have real love for each other as Christians, we're not going to always be picking at the other person's faults. 
In fact, if we have real love, we'll think more of our own faults and try to tend to them more than we will the other guy. That's really true. We'll say, well, maybe there's something wrong with me instead of them. And usually that's the case. Usually we can look in and say, you know, I think that every true child of God that's trying to live for God will want to keep himself clean. And, I mean, he'll work at that. And if we do, if we spend enough attention, just like I've already said, if we spend enough attention trying to improve our own lives and to try to be more Christ-like in our words and deeds and actions and thought and everything, then we won't have any time to be going around and saying, look at brother or sister so-and-so, what they did. Well, you know, we may, they may have done something that, that really looks bad. They may have said something that sounded bad. But, uh, you know, we don't understand. Maybe we don't understand all the uh, situation and circumstances uh, uh, that are involved, you know, during that particular time. We may not understand thoroughly what took place. If you only hear a part of it, you might hear the wrong thing. It may be something to correct, something that's already uh, taken place that the, the person you're accusing or think has done something wrong is really not doing. He's made, he may be trying to straighten out something else that's taking place. So it's just bits and pieces. You know, that's the thing that, that uh, these tapes do these guys in. You know, they start editing those tapes and they cut out where they said one thing or another. And the first thing, I wouldn't want a guy to hold me to a tape, would you? Even the sermon I'm preaching tonight, they could start chopping this up and the first thing you know, it'd be a terrible thing. If they're going to hear it, I want them to hear it from the front to the finish. All of it. Because I'm not trying to explain something later on in there that I already said. So, you know, that, that can be dangerous and also in our Christian lives. So it says charity covers sin. Let's try to uh, realize that sometimes people uh, react certain ways because of maybe they're hurting. Maybe they're hurting inside. Maybe they've got a great loss. Maybe they've got a great problem. Maybe they're preoccupied. Sometimes I'm there at the door trying to shake hands with everybody. I'll miss one or two and somebody will get out and I don't get to speak to them. It's not because I don't want to talk to everyone. It's because I can't talk to five people at one time. You know, it's kind of hard, isn't it? And, and you know that somebody might go out and say, Well, Brother Joyce didn't even tell me bye. Didn't even shake hands with me. Or didn't do this or didn't do that. Well, maybe I didn't. But remember the situation. Remember, he might have just as well been wanting to talk to you as the guy that was talking to him. Or vice versa, see? So there's a whole lot of things to take into consideration when we consider people's actions and words and, and circumstances. All right, let's go on with this. So it covers a multitude of sins. And it says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. You know, that, that really qualifies hospitality. Hospitality is taking someone out to lunch or being nice to them or going doing something for them or being hospitable in various ways to, to be entertaining or to be, uh, to be helpful or whatever. But to do it grudgingly ruins the whole thing. What you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Do it because you want to do it, not because you're forced to do it or, or you begrudge doing it. And beloved, let's try to, to develop this attitude of doing anything for anyone. If we do something, do it because we want to, not because we have to or forced to, but do it because we really love and care and want to. So it says, hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. Whatever gift God has given you, whatever talent you have, minister one to another. I, 
just love these children coming up, young people singing the way they did tonight. Shouldn't use that word anymore, children. Young people. <laughs> I see I'm already in trouble again. But anyway, I hope they'll forgive me. But they're sweet, and they can do such a wonderful job. Isn't that great that they can use their voices for the Lord? And whatever you do, whatever you do, wherever you are, sitting in the pew, if you can pray, if you can witness, if you can be friendly, if you can, if you can help someone, just use what gift or talent God has given you. Look at it. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. Whatever gift you have is to be used for the other fellow to help him out. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're stewards of whatever gift God has given us. You know, <clears throat> if any one of us were to fail to use the gift that God has given us, we would be not faithful stewards of the manifold grace of God. When God has given you a gift, it's up to you to begin to use it. And whatever gift you have, if it's, if it's a gift of praying for each other in prayer, if it's a gift of inviting people to the house of God, if it's a gift of witnessing, if it's a gift of teaching, if it's a gift of, of whatever that you can do, and uh, it's not always concerning preaching, it's not always concerning pastoring, as some people might think, or evangelistic work. It's not all concerning that. It may be concerning some, some particular way that God is pleased to use you in His work and service. And you feel that. Then it says, uh, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I like that, don't you? It's not what I think all the time. You know, we try to stick pretty close to the Word. It's what God is saying here. I try to rightly divide the word truth and to give us the various faucets of thought in it, the various uh, ramifications of it. But it's not what I think. It's what God says. And so what we need to do is, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. It's thus saith the Lord. That's what it really amounts to. Someone says, what do you think about this? It doesn't really matter a whole lot what I think about it. I can think probably wrong. But it matters what God has said. That's really what, that's the bottom line, isn't it? It's what God has said about the situation. Some people say, you think these people over here that do certain things in the church and this and that and the other and this, folks, speak about the, their speaking in tongues or this or that or the other. It doesn't make any difference what I think about that. I do have my own opinion and convictions about it. But I do believe that what God's Word says about it had one talking to me the other day about it and uh, talking about different ones and the tongues and so on. I said, listen, friend. I said, Paul wrote, I said, the only other passage is talking about it is where Paul is correcting the Corinthian church about their misuse and misunderstanding of the situation. And on the day of Pentecost, it was all altogether a different situation because every man heard them speak in his own language wherein they were born. And so, if it's something I don't understand, God didn't give them that to tell me a bunch of stuff I didn't understand. If God is speaking through a man up here, and, and, and God is speaking through that man in a, in a foreign tongue, he's got a man here to interpret it so I can understand what he's saying. See that? And on the day of Pentecost, God himself was the interpreter. And Peter spoke, and the miracle was not in the tongue, by the way. It was in the ear. You ever thought of that? Have you ever heard of unknown ears? But they, they emphasize the unknown tongues, right? But it says, every man, now listen, every man heard them in, every man heard them in his own language. 
when he was born. You see, the Bible doesn't say what a lot of people think it says. The Bible doesn't say a bunch of this stuff that's going on in the world today. And this modern movement that's going on is just generated by emotionalism. And I've heard some of them that, uh, tell that they could even teach you to speak in that thing. Well, if they have to teach you, then God didn't send it down. I'll guarantee you to speak in that miraculous uh, way. So you look at God's Word and see what it says. It says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. See? Don't go beyond what God has given, but use all that God has given you. And then it says uh, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what we're to do is to use all the talents and all the abilities and everything God has given us for His glory and try to do it with the fullness of all that we can uh, work into that, that uh, talent and that gift that He's given us. In other words, let's not be lazy about it. But let's remember the bottom line is for the glory of Christ, and it's, uh, it's uh, as if God is speaking through us and working through us, that whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. So look at that verse carefully again. Let it digest just a minute. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? When you just stop and read it. Alright? Look at verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. In other words, when persecutions come and troubles come, don't think it's strange. You know, it seems like a lot of times a person thinks it's a, a strange thing or a thing that's not really, uh, shouldn't have to do with them if they're living a Christian life that they should have trials. But Peter says don't think it's strange. Don't think it's strange if you have persecutions. Don't think it's strange if you have trials. But he says, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Right now, you do not enjoy it on the spur of the moment. If we had time to think it through, we might could even be made to enjoy it now, because we could look to the glory, right? Instead of the persecution or the trial. That's what Jesus did when he <coughs> went to the cross. Listen. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down on the right hand of God. You see, Jesus, when he went to the cross, he looked beyond the cross. He looked to the cross for the sufferings to do that in order that the glory would come after. That he would take with him a whole family of redeemed souls by his precious blood and offer the only plan and only hope for the salvation of sinners who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, stripped to nakedness, crowned with a crown of thorns, beaten with many stripes, stood upon and buffeted and rejected and, uh, and forsaken. All of this. But it says, who for the joy that was set before him. Sometimes if we could look beyond the trial to the joy. I was reading before I came up here some on this subject uh, in First Peter, just in general, and uh, the 
Dr. Uh, Roy Kemp was talking about the second coming of Christ. It's in here too. And he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And he said, we're looking for that heavenly home. And he says, it's just like moving into a new place, you know. You send one load of furniture and maybe a few of the children ahead and they've gone over there and they're already there waiting for mom and daddy to come with the last load. And they've gone through every corner of the house and found every room that's, well, I'm going to get this room over here. No, I want this one over here. And the kids are, you know, about which one they're going to get. See, it's like we've already sent part of the family ahead. And we're going to go meet them all one of these days. We've got mothers and daddies gone ahead sometimes. We've got sisters and brothers. We've got friends. We've got loved ones. We've got children maybe ahead. But we're going to all be moving in together one of these days and, and, and enjoy that heavenly home. And that's the hope of a Christian, of the child of God. So uh, we can endure the trials then if we know the joys are ahead. Think of that. We can endure the trials. Okay? If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Look at that. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, because you try to live a Christian life, you say, let's try to put it on a practical basis. You're out here as a young person, and someone, some of your companions and friends want you to do something that you know in your conscience and the Holy Spirit tells you it's wrong. Okay, now listen. Or maybe you're a grown-up and you have the same situation. A dove. More dove. Alright, look. And you have a situation where they, uh, they're going to reproach you because you say, well, no, I'm a Christian and I cannot partake of that. I cannot do that. That's not my way of living and I don't feel right about it. And you know, the whole bunch, a lot of them, maybe one or two will have respect for you. And the rest of them will laugh you out to scorn about why. <laughs> Look at that. They won't even do this or won't even do that. They're afraid to take a drink. Or they're afraid to take a little of this. Have a good time. And, you know, all the things that are generally accepted by the, the, the group. If you be reproached, listen, it says, happy are you. Look at this. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he's evil's open up, but on your part, he's glorified. You need to be able to take your stand as a Christian. Christmas time comes and they want to throw... Some of you fellows have to face this uh, year by year when, when your uh, fellow workmen want to throw some kind of a wild party. And if you say, I don't want to go because I don't drink and I don't do these things that you're gonna, that's going to take place there, you're going to be laughed at. See? You're going to be laughed at for not partaking. You say, well, all these others are doing it. Yeah, but you're not. And so you have to take your stand somewhere. And when you do, you're going to be reproached because you're a Christian. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Certainly we don't want to suffer being guilty of something that we're due suffering for, do we? But then verse 16, look. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Put up with a little suffering as a Christian if you have to. Be the oddball. Be the black sheep of the group. Be the one that they'll point out as saying, well, I don't know about him or her. You know. And you may have to be at times. And you may have to walk alone. Or you may have to be separated in order to do this. Not always. Sometimes you'll have those that will, will side along with you and they have a testimony too. If you have another Christian brother or sister and it may be such an effect that it will influence those that are wanting you to do otherwise. 
it may be such a testimony that it might be the, the means of winning some that are uh, working to the contrary. But remember that if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come, now look, that judgment must begin at the house of God. In other words, the chastening. It's not judgment in the sense that God is going to judge the house of God and, and bring fire and brimstone from heaven upon it. But this judgment for the house of God is in the form of chastisement, is in the form of correction. God has to judge. He has to bring judgment, chastisement, in this life for the saints of God. Let me give you a reference that will help us to understand. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. Our time's about gone. I won't keep you much longer. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. Notice what it says here. I wanted to get verse 31. Got back to verse 31 we'll get the whole story. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. That's what I want. Now, then that means if we would judge ourselves, in other words, confess our sins, consider our own situation, then God would not have to chasten us. Now look at the next verse. Connect it. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. See? In other words, the world is going to suffer condemnation in general, isn't it? But we're going to. We would be condemned with the world too if we did not judge ourselves and reckon ourselves to be sinners and in need of forgiveness through Christ and, for, and confess our sins. Now back in this, in First Peter, verse 17 now. Uh, 4.17 For the time has come that judgments must begin at the house of God and if it first begin at us what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? You see, if God is going to chasten us what's going to be the end of those that do not obey the gospel? If God would even chasten or judge his own children then certainly those that are disobedient to the gospel are going to be severely judged. Okay, now look at the next verse. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Now when it says scarcely saved, I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. It's not talking about any lack of the atonement of Christ. It's talking about if we scarcely be saved in the sense that we have to suffer so many trials and so great a trials and even when we... Uh, are guilty of something, we all have to be corrected in chastening of the Lord. So in that sense, the righteous are scarcely saved. doesn't mean there's any lack of the atonement and that we're not fully saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But it means saved through these sufferings that we've endured. And if we scarcely be saved, then it says, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Because they're going to have to suffer the full judgment, are they not? Because they have not been saved. And they're not under the protective blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Wherefore let him that them that suffer uh, according to the will of God <clears throat> commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So we need to suffer according to the will of God if the time is necessary that we do and commit the keeping of our souls to the Lord. Thank you for your patience and kind attention. Of All right, let's stand together for a word of prayer, please.